0: Welcome to my property NYC. This is the podcast where we'll talk about the history and the future of the New York City real estate market. My name is Anna Zahova and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. This is Anna Zahova. I'm a licensed real estate agent, and our guest today is New York City real estate and construction attorney Mark Sukkov, who is also the founding principal of the law offices of Mark Sukkov. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you, Anna. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you again. And today we're going to talk about obtaining mortgages. So let's start here. What is the main difference between a pre-qualification and a pre-approval?
1: Sure. Most of my clients come to me with a pre-approval letter. In fact, if they come to me before that, I would tell them to recommend to them that they get a pre-approval letter from the bank to purchase up to a certain amount of house uh, price. And the pre-approval letter typically requires submission of certain financial information, tax returns, uh, employment earnings, things of that nature, so that the bank can make a preliminary assessment of how much uh, my borrowers may qualify for. Uh, With the pre-qualification, what's your experience with that, Anna?
0: Well, I've seen some clients come in to me with pre-qualification letters, and those are really not sufficient for a seller to really consider an offer. And the main reason for that is that obtaining a pre-qualification letter doesn't require any supporting documents. The borrower went to the bank and they made some verbal representations without submitting any documentation. Uh, So that would not stand, and most sellers would not take that seriously.
1: I agree. I think since the recession, the Great Recession, so to speak, there's a lot more requirement now for documentation to be submitted on the the pre-approval side and then also on the underwriting side before you get the loan.
0: Exactly. And we're certainly going to talk about the effect of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform shortly after we discuss some of the basics around mortgages. And my second question to you is, what are the different types of financing that a borrower can consider?
1: Sure. So in the marketplace, there's what's called conventional financing, which is loans that private banks issue, but are backed by the government and its Fannie Mae program of buying back loans from banks so that they can issue more loans. There's also private bank financing where it's not a Fannie Mae product. And there's also FHA loans, which are the most restrictive and probably the hardest to get. If you qualify for uh, a private loan, and that would often depend on the size of the loan and the amount that you're putting down, then you'll have some more flexibility. The bank may be able to offer you a slightly better rate or uh, different repayment terms and, and, and arms, which are adjustable rate mortgages. You can also get an adjustable rate mortgage or a 30-year fixed mortgage with a conventional loan, but Uh, you're going to have more uh, hoops and hurdles, so to speak, and more regulations involved to get the loan approved because it's backed by a government Fannie Mae program.
0: Okay. And let's talk about conventional loans since those are really the most popular ones. Uh, There are two types of conventional loans, conforming and non-conforming. And would you please tell us the difference between those?
1: Yes. Conforming loans are loans that, first of all, in a particular market location, are of a certain size or under. And if the loan that you're seeking is more than the cap for a conventional loan, then it's a non-conventional loan, also known as a jumbo loan. Now, that amount will differ depending on what market you're in. So in New York the the cap for a conventional loan is going to be significantly higher than the cap for a conventional loan, let's say, in North Carolina.
0: Okay, and what is seller financing, and why don't we see more of that happen? I haven't had a seller who has financed the mortgage for any of my buyers.
1: Right, I haven't seen that either, and it's funny because in every form contract that I've used, There's always a section for seller-provided financing. But the problem with that is, I think, pretty straightforward if you think about what that contemplates. So that would mean, let's say I was buying a home, Anna, from you, and it was $500,000, and I put down $100,000. Instead of me going to a bank... To get the loan for four hundred thousand, you you would supply me with that loan, and I would pay you under the terms of that loan. And if I defaulted, you would get the house back. Well, that's not such a convenient option for a lot of sellers because their whole point is to be done with owning the property, not have a chance of of getting it back, and of course they want to receive the gain, hopefully immediately, not over a repayment period.
0: That's right. And now let's take a look at something that's very basic, but everybody asks about it. What is the process like when purchasing a property and you're financing um, part of that purchase? Uh, so, can we go over the steps of what it takes and how long everything takes in order to get to the closing table?
1: Yeah, let's give that a try. It's, it's always a more involved process to purchase a home when you're reliant on bank financing. And that starts, honestly, even before you enter into a contract of sale, getting pre-qualified, which we talked about, and... Uh, getting pre-approved. Uh, but let's say you get to contract. So you're, you have an accepted offer and you're in contract. You're going to have a uh, mortgage contingency, perhaps, which will give you a certain period of time to apply for the loan with the bank and get a mortgage commitment.
0: And that usually is about 45 days.
1: Well, it's interesting because, on the one hand, while I've I've noted that it's taken longer for uh, parties to get to closing with bank financing, I've also seen that sellers want finality. So I would say anywhere from 20 to 45 days is, is is pretty standard as a range for getting a bank commitment. Remember, the bank commitment is just a letter off, uh, agreeing, being committing to lend. It, that still doesn't result in the closing immediately. There's a lot of additional uh, work that goes on to actually get to the closing. But after you submit your application to the lender of your choice, the next major thing that, and that process will include submitting tax returns and a whole host of other Uh, financial documentation, personal documentation, giving your social security number and having credit checks done on each of the borrowers. The bank will then shortly thereafter, as they move forward, order an appraisal for the property. So the appraisal results in um, an appraiser who's like an inspector actually going to the property, sometimes going inside the property and writing up a report valuing the property and whether the, the, the property can support uh, the, the purchase price. Assuming you get your appraisal, then the bank is going to do its underwriting of the loan.
0: In regards to the appraisal, I want to talk about a very interesting case where for example if a seller has agreed to sell a property for a million dollars and the buyer had to obtain a mortgage they send their appraiser which came back with only nine hundred thousand dollars what's something very important that we should mention here
1: that situation which really is not that uncommon since there's a lot of discretion given to an appraiser when she goes out and values a property, creates a financial hole for the buyer. And the reason for that is that the lender will only lend a percentage of the appraised value. So for instance, if you're counting on 80% financing, the lender's only going to give you... 80% 80% of 900000 and therefore, you will have to come up with the additional monies to get to $1 million. or or you, you could back out of the deal, because at that point, you're not going to get a mortgage for 80% of the purchase price. So if the mortgage contingency is included, and it's structured for what you actually need you could walk away from the deal, which is not what you were hoping for when they sent the appraiser out.
0: Okay. So from a mortgage perspective, what's the next step that has to take place right after the appraisal has came back?
1: After the appraisal, the bank is going to be working internally to underwrite the loan. So that means that the application will be sent over to the underwriting department. The underwriters are basically the risk assessors, the people who scrutinize all of the information that's been submitted, the appraisal information, and then make a decision whether or not to lend to the borrowers. At the same time, other parts of the bank may be working with the borrower to lock in a rate uh, and to uh, pick a product, if it hasn't already been picked, a loan product.
0: Some clients like to lock their rates extremely early in the process, and some like to uh, lock them much later, hoping that they're going to get a lower rate. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Some people, depending on their risk tolerance, some borrowers will lock in a rate uh, as soon as uh, as they have a contract of sale. Other borrowers may wait until they get closer to closing because a lock-in typically will only uh, be valid for a relatively short period of time between 60 and 90 days. So if you lock in too early, then you're going to have to re-lock in or extend your lock-in and pay an additional fee. Locking in a rate is a bit of a tricky business because it requires to a certain extent a borrower's ability to predict how rates are going to change in the future. In the current environment that we're in, for instance, it it certainly has been the trend that the Federal Reserve has been increasing rates, and that's resulted in mortgage rates increasing, but very gradually. So in this type of environment, many borrowers want to lock in as soon as they can, which would be typically right after they have a fully executed contract. But if you were in a different environment where rates were not uh, increasing or perhaps were were decreasing, then you you might want to wait to get a lower rate. And also, you have to consider and factor how long you expect until closing because the rate lock-in could expire after 60 or 90 days, and if you still haven't closed, you're going to have to buy an extension of a rate lock or re-lock in at a new rate.
0: So can we lock the rate before the commitment letter has been issued?
1: Absolutely. You can lock in as soon as you have a fully signed contract.
0: So now let's talk about HUD-1. What is is it? Why is it important?
1: The HUD-1 refers to a form of closing statement. Traditionally, borrowers would uh, and their lenders would go to the closing table and there would be a form HUD-1, it was the name of the form, and it would show all of the seller's transaction and all of the buyer's transaction. That form or some version of that form continues to be used because it works.
0: So that's actually a subtle misstatement, is that right?
1: Exactly, and I apologize for not making that clearer. That's the, the, the gold standard is to have the HUD settlement statement. If you're a, a seller, like clients that I've had recently, and then you're going to buy, on the buy side, the lender wants to see the settlement statement from the sale so that they know that you, you've gotten enough money out of that sale transaction for your purchase.
0: And that's also the same exact document that the buyer should receive within three days of their closing. Is that right?
1: Correct. With the most recent round of federal uh, mortgage financing reform, there is a requirement that the lender provide in this prescribed uh, HUD form a full disclosure three days before the closing, the scheduled closing, of. The transaction. And you know what? If the lender forgets to do it, and I've had situations, Anna, you won't believe it, where the closing gets adjourned, sometimes at the closing table, to provide that three-day notice period.
0: What is a private mortgage insurance or PMI? Can you give us a little more information on that?
1: Sure. Once you find out what PMI is, if you're a borrower, you're going to have a huge frown on your face and want to do anything and everything you can to avoid having to pay for that product. What is it? It's an additional insurance product, this one for the benefit solely of the lender. And it applies whenever the borrower puts down uh, less than 20% as as their own contribution to the transaction. And it can stay in place until you get to... Uh, to 10%, uh, or in other words, if, you, if the equity in the home has built up to 90%. But I want to uh, remind borrowers, if they do have PMI insurance, to pay attention to their annual mortgage summary statement, because a lot of times they'll have equity built up to 90%. And all they have to do is contact their lender, and under the New York law, the lender is required to terminate the PMI, but if you don't call, they don't they don't remove it.
0: So you might continue paying for something that you shouldn't be paying for. Exactly. And now, let's talk about the effect of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform, which we mentioned earlier. How did that regulation of mortgages issuance changed in 2014?
1: Well, that's a, a really uh, complicated question. On the one hand, I know that banks are a lot safer now because they've tightened up their, their lending requirements. And to a certain extent, consumers are better off too because they're not going to get a loan unless they're more, they're more qualified. But on the other hand, because there's more regulation... What I've seen, and what I think most of my colleagues who do real estate closings will agree, is that it's more tedious, more burdensome for the borrower, and takes longer to get to the closing table. And in addition, certain people who may actually be qualified to get a loan because of their particular financial situation, if they're self-employed and can't provide the paperwork, to document their earnings, uh, they may not be able to get a loan at all and therefore not buy a home.
0: That's right. And can you tell us how has financing changed and what are the three requirements that has been put in place since uh, the reform?
1: Well, along the lines that I was talking about before, Uh, The regulations have required that the loan product be fully amortized over the entire life of the loan. So that basically means that the borrower will be paying down uh, the loan, both principal and interest, from day one, uh, unless it's a home equity loan or some other specific product where... Uh, It's an interest-only period up front for a certain number of years. And also there's going to be a determination in good faith by the lender that the borrower has the ability to repay. So you're not going to have situations where the bank just willy-nilly will lend money to anyone who asks for it. The loan may be fixed or adjustable after a five-year period, and it has to be based on widely available indexes such as the the LIBOR.
0: That's right. And this is the third requirement. And now let's talk about construction loans. What are they and how do they work?
1: I love construction loans. I'm so glad that you asked me about it, Anna. I do construction law, and so I love a a, a scenario where my client, the borrower, is not just buying real property, but they're going to build on it, and they're getting a loan typically to buy and to build, and it can be one loan. What you'll see is there'll be a closing initially on the purchase of the real property and also on the the line, the the credit line for the construction costs.
0: So how does it work after that?
1: Sure. So after the closing, the homeowner now owns the the vacant lot. And now they have to hire a contractor, an architect first, the contractor. And the bank will release uh, portions of the construction loan Uh, as the the construction work progresses.
0: And what happens with the loan once the construction has been completed?
1: At the end of the project, and assuming the whole um, construction line has been used and the the home has been completed, there is typically an automatic conversion of the construction loan to a permanent financing typically a 30-year fixed mortgage. So the borrower gets the benefit during the course of the construction of uh, basically a line of credit, which is typically, it could be a variable interest rate, could be a fixed interest rate, but at the end of the construction project, the whole loan will typically be converted, usually automatically, into a permanent loan for an extended period the construction loan will just be for a short period could be two to three years and then at the end of the construction it'll convert to a long-term loan product
0: right well thank you mark for coming out today and this was extremely helpful and i hope our listeners have benefited from it can you share with our listeners where can they find you
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this has been informative, but this is really just touching the, the surface. And, you know, it would be great Anna, if we, we could get a, uh, a mortgage broker consultant, uh, you know, to, to come talk about some of the specific hot topics in, in financing today. I'm always reachable at designandbuildlaw.com, and my email is info at designandbuildlaw.com.
0: Thank you for being with us today and I look forward to our next episode in which we are going to talk about tiny houses. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Property NYC. Please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to our channel.